Hi, I'm Abigail, and this is Peak Curiosity. Today I have Amy Lutz, and she tells us the best World War II story you've never heard. She's super knowledgeable and agreeable, and I had so much fun talking to her. If you're curious about what Amy also had to say about Amelia Earhart, you can go to the podcast No Dumb Questions, and she's on episode 93. Without any further ado, let's get started. So, how's it going? I'm good. I'm yeah. good. Surviving the pandemic. Sure. Has it been... Where? What state do you live in? I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. Cool. Middle of the country. Very, very cool. Is it... I, I've never been there. What's it like? It's great. So, I, I actually grew up in Kansas, but I grew up on the Kansas-Missouri border. Um, I'm a big fan of St. Louis. I actually went here for undergraduate and grad school. I left and came back. And, and it's a good city. It's a good, you know, St. Louis is, is kind of like, you know, like Nashville or Cleveland, like kind of one of those mid-sized cities that has everything you need, but it's not like too big. Um, and it's really great. And, and if you drive 15 minutes, you're in, you know, the suburbs. If you drive half an hour, you hit cornfields. So it has, it has a little bit of everything. Nice. Would you mind giving me a little introduction to who you are? Sure. So I'm Amy Lutz. Everyone always mispronounces my last name. It's it's Lutz, not Lutz. But you've you've done a good job. Um, <laughs> and let's see. I have two degrees in history. One is a bachelor's degree in history, a bachelor's degree in history from St. Louis University, and then a master's from the University of Missouri St. Louis. Um, with a focus on a couple things, I actually wrote my thesis on Amelia Earhart and on. Um, a lot of the theories about her disappearance, but my primary interest is in um, in the field of the Holocaust, especially Holocaust rescue. Um, and, and I did, you know, some communications and political work in between undergraduate and grad school. I'm trying to think if I have anything interesting about me to describe myself. I have a dog. So if you hear clicking in the background, that's my dog, Kyla. Um, it's raining outside. So she's uh, she's a little nervous, but that's about it. Are you married? I am not, as you can tell by the empty apartment. Okay, so we have an eligible lady on the show today. <laughs> um, are you, I assume you're like 28 or so by you're the time close, you've got actually. to college? You know what? That's a good guess. I'm 29. Ah, sweet. So today, well, one of your big specialties, I suppose would be the story of Carl Lutz. Is it also Lutz? Yes. And he is not actually related to you, which is super interesting. But mm -hmm. your expertise is his story of saving 62,000 Jews from the Holocaust, which is amazing. So mm -hmm. you're just going to walk us through the story, and I'm going to ask questions as they come up. So mm -hmm. have at it. Definitely. And please do interrupt me because this is one of the stories okay. I could I could go on for a while. So um, Carl Lutz was a Swiss diplomat. So he was born in Switzerland around the turn of the 20th century. And uh, he actually spent about 25 years in the United States. He moved to the United States. This will all become important to his rescue story, I promise. Uh, he moved to the United States in about uh, 1913. Didn't know a word of English. He spoke German. People in Switzerland usually speak German or French and he spoke German. And I uh, spent a few years actually in East St. Louis, which for people around this area know that's actually in Illinois, um, worked in a factory saving up money for school. And he actually um, 
ended up in school around 1919 and wanted to be a pastor or pastor or a missionary. He actually, he was a very devout Christian and, uh, and, and that's what he wanted to do. But he found out that he had terrible stage fright and he was not a good speaker. And so he ended up going into the diplomatic service. Uh, he transferred from a small college in Missouri to um, Washington or yeah, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Graduated from there, spent some time working in uh, an embassy or consulate in D.C., and, uh, and then basically got shipped around the United States uh, to, to different places uh, in diplomatic positions. And the last one was in St. Louis, which, of course, is where I am right now. Um, the office where he worked is about two miles from me. It's actually pretty close. Um, and he was here for a couple of years. He met his wife here, who was also from Switzerland, but she actually happened to be here at the time. And um, while he was in the United States, he kept sending letters back to Switzerland saying, please let me come back. Please let me come back. Because he was saying the health or the, the weather is terrible and my health in the United States. And I, you know, I don't want to be here, but, you know, there were other plans for Carl Lutz. And, and so finally, you know, he gets married and he ends up, um, he's supposed, he was supposed to go to London for, for an appointment. He finally got out, but ends up being sent to Palestine in 1936. Now, this was a British, Palestine was a British mandate. It was British territory at the time because the state of Israel, of course, had not yet been founded, at least not officially speaking. Um, and he was there for a few years. And in 1939, something very big happened in the world, and that's the start of the Second World War. And um, there were about a couple thousand Germans stuck in Palestine because it was a British territory. And this happens a lot during wars. So when the United States entered the war in 1941, there were a bunch of Americans in Japan who had to figure out how to get out. And so what happens in those situations is that the two warring countries go to a neutral power and they that neutral diplomat in the middle negotiates the release. And so in this case, Carl Lutz, representing Switzerland, which of course was neutral, was in charge of getting that group of Germans back to Germany. This becomes very important later on when we talk about his actual rescue efforts. Um, so apparently he does a really great job. He works like 20 hour days, tries to make sure that, because some of these people are diplomats, some of them are civilians, some of them are German Jews actually, which will become important. But he works really well to make sure, make sure they're being treated well and finally is able to get most of these Germans stuck in Palestine back to Germany. And, you know, there's, there's the higher-ups in Germany are so impressed with his skills in diplomacy that he actually ends up getting a letter from the Fuhrer's office, from Hitler's office, just, I don't think it was from Hitler himself, just someone in the office just saying, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, good job, or, or at least the word had reached them that he had done this, this incredible job and they knew him by name. But as I mentioned, there were I think it was a couple hundred German Jews in Palestine in 1939. Many of them had gone to Palestine to escape the beginnings of the Holocaust in Germany. And so they, of course, did not want to go back to Germany. So what Lutz was able to do was he procured a number of protective papers called Schutzpasses from the British, which gave their holders exile in Palestine. And so he gave out a couple hundred of them, a couple thousand, however many he, he had, and the people he gave those to were able to stay and so far as we know probably survived the holocaust because you know palestine was kind of outside of things at the time and those people are considered in the number that he rescued so that's the first first block so he's there for a few years one other thing happens while he's there that becomes important to his next diplomatic 
job. He and his wife were standing on the roof of their apartment and they saw a Jewish man or a couple of Jewish men lynched in the streets. And they were so horrified that they couldn't do anything to stop it, that they were just standing up on the roof and they, you know, had almost this survivor's guilt of, of being unable to, unable to do anything. And so Lutz sends a letter to his brother the next day in which he says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he said, you know, as I was watching this, as I was watching the beatings happening in the street, I made a promise to myself that I would speak up for them, meaning the Jews in Palestine at the time. And, and there was a short-term and a long-term promise kind of inherent in that statement. The short-term is that he did send a memo to the British government about violence he'd seen against Jews in, in the streets around his apartment and around his office. But there is a long-term promise, which, of course, we'll get to. And so around, you know, he actually ends up going back to Switzerland for a short period of time. But in 1942, he ends up in Budapest, Hungary. So a little context here. Hungary was actually allied with the Nazis quite early on um, in, for a lot of complicated reasons that we won't get into. Uh, but they were allied with the Nazis and passed a series of pieces of anti-Semitic legislation. You know, Jewish men and boys were often forced to participate in like labor battalions. Um, there were kind of uh, isolated cases of anti-Semitic violence. But, and, and I say this, very carefully, relatively speaking, the, the key word, word being relatively here, it was different in 1942 being Jewish in Budapest than it was in, say, Poland. Because in 1942, the concentration camps in Poland were running at full capacity. Um, Jews in the rest of Europe were in concentration camps, in ghettos, hiding or trying to get out any way that they could. So it was a little different in Hungary. So when Lutz arrives, it's Again, comparatively speaking, it's not tranquil, but it's not a war zone like the rest of Europe. That changes in 1944. The Nazis invade March 19th, 1944. Again, for lots of complicated reasons. They, you know, there was suspicion that the Hungarians were going to try to make a deal with the Allies, which they probably were. There was a lot of distrust of the Hungarian government. So the Nazis show up. They basically put a puppet government, a collaborationist government, um, in charge in Hungary, and they and they basically take over the running of, of the nation. And so at that point, they start implementing all of the aspects of the final solution of the Holocaust that they had not yet done. And so um, Jews were immediately forced into ghettos, forced to wear the, um, I can't remember if it was a yellow star or white star, but wear the Jewish yellow. star. It, well, it was, it, it might have been because it, it was actually different colors in different places. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So in places like Warsaw, they were um, blue and white armbands that kind of look like the uh the israeli flag that was actually part of the inspiration um so i think it was a yellow star in budapest but i, I would have to check and so of course carl lutz is saying all of this he's he's a neutral diplomat he's he could have literally just like sat at his desk and just put his head down because he was in a neutral position he you know he had some political capital he was again kind of respected by the german government as being this pretty pretty competent uh diplomat but he didn't do that realized that he needed to do something. And so, again, long and complicated story short, he uh, remembered these protective passes that he'd been introduced to in Palestine, and he still had a bunch of them left. Uh, he had about 8,000, 7 or 8,000 protective papers um, that, if you recall, um, would give people holding them exile in Palestine. What he realized, though, is that 
not only that, anyone holding them um, because they were therefore under Swiss protection, because the Swiss were the ones kind of administrating this paperwork, um, they could not be put into a ghetto, they could not be sent to a camp, and they were exempt from a lot of the things that were happening to Jews in Budapest. Wow. Um, and the Jewish community was about 250,000 on the eve of the um, invasion. That was the last untouched Jewish community under Axis control in Europe. So that was the only, last one that had not been touched. Obviously, that does not last. Um, and so Lutz, uh, what he realizes is he, you know, these papers are basically authorized by the British. He gets kind of provisional authorization from his colleagues in the, in the Swiss government, but as we'll We'll talk about he kind of kept kept from them a little bit of what he was doing. But he realized that if he didn't get authorization from the German authorities in Hungary, then it didn't matter. If they weren't going to honor them, then there was no point in actually giving these out. So he asks around for a while and uh, he finally is told, um, you know, who you need to talk to. You need to talk to this man who just arrived in Budapest by the name of Adolf Eichmann. So we know Adolf Eichmann is basically the architect of the final solution, one of the most violently anti-Semitic, villainous Nazi leaders at the time. Um, Lutz would have not really known that. He would have known him as kind of a high-ranking official. So he, he, he sends a, uh, sets up a meeting with Eichmann, and, and it's pretty adamant. He said, look, I have these papers. They're already authorized. I literally have them in my hand. Um, you know, you just, you know, I just need authorization. And, uh, and Eichmann Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, go for it. I've gotten a little bit lost in the in the timeline. So okay. what year are we in right now? We're 1944. So this is like mid-1944 still. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, good good question. Um, all of these rescue efforts happen within like a nine-month period. It's actually a oh, wow. lot of things happening at the same time. Um, okay. So he has this meeting because I can't give these paperwork, paper, paperwork out yet. And so Eichmann... Um, was not intimidated by Carl Lutz. Remember what I said when, when Carl Lutz was in college? He wasn't a great speaker. He was actually a little soft-spoken. He was a little shy. And because of that, and, be, you know, for a variety of reasons, Eichmann isn't really intimidated by him. He doesn't, he doesn't see him as a threat, and that actually plays to Lutz's advantage. In the meeting, Eichmann tells him, he kind of mocks him. He says, who do you think you are? Are you Moses taking your people to the promised land? Um, just you know, thought mm. that he could push him around, but Lutz is pretty out of me. So no, 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 no. Like these are, these are authorized, you know, you just need to say, okay. But Eichmann, if you know anything about him, didn't want to make the decision himself. And so he kicks it up to Heinrich Himmler, who kicks it up to Adolf Hitler. Oh, and wow. um, so far as we know, we're, we're not sure if Hitler himself saw it, but it goes up to the Fuhrer's office. It goes to someone in his office. And then a little while later, Lutz gets a telegraph or a wire that says, you know what? We remember this man. We remember this man from his work in Palestine. And because of that, we're going to authorize these 8,000 papers. Wow. And so, which is really incredible. Um, one of the things to remember at this time, too, is that there is mass chaos going on in, in Budapest and in Hungary. And so part of the reason why Luce was able to get away with this is because there's like 10 million different things going on and no one looked too closely at paperwork. Um, so that, that really ends up playing in his benefit. So here's the thing, though. Carl Lutz never intended on only saving 8,000 people. He immediately mm -hmm. alters the papers so that each one of them covers not, um, not an individual, but a family. So that goes, the number of people he can protect goes from seven to 8,000 to 30, 40, 50,000, depending on how, how many people come to his office. 
And um, so he just starts, he's working with uh, some some Jewish members of, of the Budapest community who he, who he gave paperwork to and had a bunch of volunteers coming in and they were just producing paperwork, paperwork after, after paperwork. Um, there were a lot of forged pieces of, of uh, protective passes going around. Lutz knew about it. We know that he knew about it because he actually gave the forger Swiss letterhead to make them look um, more convincing. And so those are flying around Budapest. People are desperately trying to get the papers. There's at one point, like literally tens of thousands of protective papers flying around the city. And there were other neutral nations doing that too, um, as well. Lutz actually tried to bring them all kind of under the same umbrella. And there was a, a, a quite a bit of coordination. I mean, they were all kind of independent operations. Uh, Sweden was there. The Vatican was there. Um, Spain. It was actually an Italian businessman posing at a Spanish ambassador who was producing paperwork. So it was it was kind of a chaotic thing, but there were lots of protective papers flying around. Um, Lutz also um, rented out about 76 buildings, put them under Swiss diplomatic protection, and allowed about 3,000 Hungarian Jews to live there who had lost their property and their homes. And when they lived there in what they call the international ghetto, because there were some other neutral powers who rented out some buildings as well, um, People who lived there did not have to wear the, the star. They could not be um, sent to camps. They could not be put into the Nazi-run ghetto. They were exempt from a lot of things like that. And so this is going on on for months. In October, the um, there was a violently fascist anti-Semitic party called the Arrow Cross uh, that staged a coup in Hungary in October of 1944. And the puppet government... Um, that had been in charge in Hungary had been kind of somewhat allowing all of this to happen. You know, they stopped the deportations at one point, but they, they weren't actively participating. Well, they were in some case, they were collaborating, but not as, not as much as the Arrow Cross would. So the Arrow Cross are in charge and then they just launched this wave of terror. There were about 60,000 people killed directly by the Arrow Cross, which were directly collaborating with the Nazis. And so things become very difficult um, for Lutz and people like him. Uh, trying to protect people because, I mean, people were literally being pulled off the street. And uh, there's one story where, where Carl Lutz and his driver, his driver was driving him through the city and they're, they're driving past the Danube, which is the river that cuts the city basically in half. And one of the things that the Arrow Cross would do, this is quite morbid, but they would bring groups of Jews down to the river. They would shoot them and push them into the water. And did this regularly and this had just happened as, as Lutz was driving by and he looks in the water and he sees a woman bobbing up and down she had been shot but she was still alive the water was so cold that it actually like caught not cauterized but it like slowed the blood flow um so she was still alive so he like in a full suit jumps into the water pulls her out in front of these soldiers with probably high-powered weapons and turns around and just starts yelling at them. He's like, how, how dare you? This woman is under Swiss protection. You can't do this. And they were so taken aback. They just said, okay, fine. Like, you take mm, her. Yeah. Um, but he'd never I bet them. nobody stood up to them very often. Well, well, no. I mean, I think I think that's a good point. They were so taken aback by this, like, well-dressed man who had dressed, jumped into the, the, the river that they didn't know what to do. Um, but he'd never met that woman before. <laughs> he didn't know who yeah. she was. Um, he ended up, you know, taking her back to one of the houses he was protecting and connected her with a Jewish surgeon he was protecting and saved her life. Um, wow. Just saw a moment to, to jump in and save her. And so he's doing all of these things um, in, let's see, in December. So kind of wrap up note before I get to kind of the end of the war. 
as I mentioned, this is a, you know, several month period of time. That also benefits Lutz because the Russian army was like right there. Like the Red Army was basically around the corner. And because this paperwork was like semi-forged, if the war had gone on any longer, people would have figured it out. And, and the Nazis did kind of figure it out, but they didn't figure it out in time before the Red Army invaded. And mm. so some of it was just like, we need to hold on and protect as many as people as possible. And that was kind of the idea behind what he was doing. And so the Red Army shows up in December. The Siege of Budapest, which is like the last big battle um, of the time, starts on Christmas Eve, December 1944. And it lasts for about a month, month or two, actually. It takes, takes a while to liberate the other side of the city. Because um, Budapest is actually the combination of two cities. It's Buda and Pest that became one city. And Lutz was on one side. Lutz was on the opposite side of where the fighting was. And so that actually ends up benefiting him. He and his, his family, his wife, and some people that they had protected um, had to hide in the basement of the British embassy. Because his job while he was there to act was actually to represent allied interests. And so I think he worked in the British embassy and lived in the American embassy. Or maybe I have that backwards. And they were in a basement for like two months as, as the bombs are, are flying above them. Eventually they're liberated. They get out. And, um, again, long and complicated reasons, uh, the Soviet Union expels all of the neutral diplomats because they assumed that they had been collaborating. They weren't, but they, they expel them. And so the Lutzes have to escape. They make it to Turkey. Um, that's the first place that they get. So he has a wife. Does he have children? He does not. So he, um, he actually gets remarried after the war. He and his wife divorce and he... Okay, so he, is he alone at this point then when he's trying to escape? No, it's he and his wife are together at this point. And she and okay. I should say his his wife Trudy was an active part of the rescue effort. She's also considered a rescuer herself. Um, so they have to escape, end up in Turkey, and it's and it's just them. I think I think some of his staff were involved too, so I think his staff was with him as well. And um, the morning of they get to the the hotel in in Istanbul. This sounds like a small thing, but it becomes important. Lutz has a glass of, of orange juice because it was he'd been in a basement for two months. He had no fresh fruit. He had no sugar. He wow. had nothing like that. And so like a glass of orange juice was a big deal. Um, so he drinks a glass of orange juice, gets on, a, I think they're on a ferry for a while and a train. And so they end up back at the border of Switzerland. Um, and Carl Lutz, who was a terrified of public speaking, he actually writes this short speech on the way back because... He assumed when he got back that his colleagues would be like, okay, what did you do? What did you, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from, from something else, what did you do during the war? Like he, you know, assumed they'd want to know that maybe they'd kind of celebrate that things had changed after the war, um, that he'd saved so many people. Um, so he gets to the border of Switzerland and the only thing any government official asks him is, do you have something to declare? Because it was a customs agent. That's what customs agents ask everybody who shows up at a border um, of, of a new nation. Because uh, there's no one waiting for him. No one waiting for him. And actually, none of his colleagues really wanted to hear anything about what happened in Budapest. In fact, the only, the only acknowledgement he gets in the first few weeks after he gets back is he gets a note from the finance department saying, you weren't authorized to buy this glass of orange juice in Istanbul and complaining about his expense report. What? Uh, yeah, and, and they, they dragged their feet on reimbursing him for his personal furniture that had been destroyed in the bombing. And really just, it was this bureaucratic mess. But eventually what ends up happening is that his superiors back in Switzerland condemn him for what he did. Why? It's, it's a lot of complicated reasons, but Switzerland really valued their neutrality. 
Um, they didn't want to be seen as taking a side, which again had some benefits. You know, neutral nations have a role in, in wars and, and everything, but um, it was seen, you know, helping Jews was seen as violating neutrality. Um, he was told that he went, quote, outside of his authority. Um, mm. And it was it was really almost a bureaucratic complaint that he, he you know, did something he wasn't supposed to. And even though he saved tens of thousands of people, it didn't matter. And, and so actually Switzerland basically buries what he did for about 50 years. Uh, he gets some acknowledgement in his hometown. He was made a, he was born in this small town in Switzerland. Uh, he was made an honorary citizen there. He gets a claim in Israel, a little bit in the United States, outside of outside of Switzerland. But it was very important to him to to be acknowledged. Um, and his and probably more importantly, his reputation had been destroyed. Like he was sure. seen as this troublemaker. He was basically demoted. He actually spends a couple months in a mental health facility because of the trauma of the war and everything that he'd he'd gone through, which is understandable. That feels like an understatement. Uh, and only <laughs> yeah, only a couple months actually sounds like. What a remarkable I, recovery! Uh, you know, you, you have a good point. I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't even imagine. It's not just the war; it's the coming back and you know, not being acknowledged. And so he, uh, Switzerland does not acknowledge at a national level really until about 1995 what he had done. He died in 75, um, and they acknowledge it like right after his wife dies because um, she spent the last 20 years of her life even though they were no longer married she spends her life telling his story and her story as well it was still a very amicable friendship mm. um you know so it's, it's very sad but this is where i usually i usually leave this this long story which is um uh, pretty soon after he got back to um to switzerland he actually writes this 11 page report letter just detailing why he did what he did and, and specifically what he did and in it he says um i recall he was a devout christian he said slight paraphrase here but i did not want to be a christian in name only i felt that it was a matter of conscience to save people condemned to die and that's what he did and because of that uh the numbers range but um he's credited with saving about 50 to seventy thousand people at least 50,000. Uh, wow. His biographer says 62,000. And, uh, and and that is the largest civilian rescue mission of the entire Holocaust. And yet, if you ask someone who saved more people during the Holocaust, no one knows the answer, in part because the story was buried for so long. Um, so that's, yeah. that's it. That's where the story ends. That's insane. And now it's time for a word from my sponsor, which is me. I'm not going to ask for money. Instead, I'm going to ask you to leave a review on iTunes or Google. My biggest vision for this podcast is to take the square millimeter of the internet that I get to be a part of and make it a better place. I really want to do this by branching out and talking to people with whom I don't often agree, but still have a great time and find out where we do agree. A review would help in this way. When I try to contact a possible guest, they can look up my podcast and see what it's about to see if I'm the kind of person they would feel comfortable with giving me editing power over their voice, which is a huge risk. Obviously, leave an honest review, but if the honest opinion is less than four stars, you can just keep it to yourself. Another simple thing would be to share an episode here and there with a friend. Anywho, let's get back to it. So he's the largest civilian mm -hmm. rescuer. Do you know of a larger one other than like the freeing at the end? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I say largest civilian rescue mission because obviously, you know, you could credit like 
the allied military for rescuing millions of people, you know, from, sure. from the military yeah. side or, or, okay. or liberating concentration camps, which cannot be discounted, but it's, they're two different things. You know, they're just in different categories. Um, yeah. So, and, and the thing about Budapest was that those other neutral diplomats saved a bunch of people themselves. Um, the, mm. what's his name? Um, Raoul Wallenberg, who was from Sweden, his, his name, lots of people have heard of, actually more people have heard of Wallenberg than Lutz. He saved, so some people say he saved 100,000 people. He saved a lot of people, but he saved about seven to 10,000, which is still like an incredible number. Insane. Yeah, still. And, and the, the Vatican had a representative there who saved probably about 15,000 people. Uh, the numbers were really, really high of, of people who rescued um, in Budapest. And, and certainly there were, you know, so diplomatic rescuers were not uncommon. Um, uh, Sugihara was a man from Japan who basically just forged, I think it was a couple thousand, um, forged a bunch of pa pieces of paperwork pretty early on in the Holocaust um, to help get people out. So yeah, I mean, there were, there were certainly people like that, but the best that we understand, Lutz probably saved more than any individual person. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. So how did you hear of this guy? So it's actually a funny story. Um, gosh, this is probably 15 years ago. I think it was my sister. I, I should ask her about this because she might correct me, but it was either me or my sister had a history textbook uh, that had a picture of him in it. And it, it wasn't a full chapter or anything. It was just this small photo and said, you know, he rescued people during the Holocaust. And uh, we noticed his last name. So you have the sure. same last name. And my, my dad actually looked at the picture and he said, that looks like my uncle. Um, he actually, and, and that's for a long time, we had some suspicions that maybe, uh, maybe he was related. Maybe he's, he's distantly related. I've not found the, the connection, but that's really where it stuck is that you, we, I heard of this incredible story of a guy who just happened to have my last name. Um, and so that, you know, probably 15 years ago, that's when I, I first heard it. Hmm. So your research that you've done on this dude, mm -hmm. how much of this is coming from official paperwork and mm -hmm. how much is coming from maybe like a memoir or journal of yeah, Carl's? That's a great question. So there's been a a pretty limited amount of research on him. I mean, there's been, like I said, there's been one biography, really. There's been a, another biography, but it has not been translated into English. It's in German uh, by someone who actually knew him that came out in like 1989. Um, and uh, his stepdaughter actually has done, she, she, uh, she put together um, this book that came out a couple years ago, which is just a, really a collection of witness statements. I mean, stories of people who were rescued by him, people who worked with him, um, so there's been a couple things. There's a short documentary actually about him that came out a few years ago, but in terms of the secondary sources, you know, like biographies and those are pretty sparse. Um, he actually had a journal, but it's not available to the public. And so I'm trying to get access to that, but that, that requires kind of deeper credentials. And I think actual travel to go, to go see a copy of it has not been digitized. So a lot of the, um, a lot of the research is based upon um, eyewitness statements. I mean, literally hundreds, if not thousands of people who were rescued by him have stories and tales who, you mm -hmm. know, have have come forth with that. Uh, there's a little bit of paperwork, you know, so there's a paper, the paper that he wrote. There's, I mean, and there's like thousands of those protective passes still, still in existence. I myself have found a bunch of newspaper reports. The reason why I know about 
uh, quite a bit about his time in the United States is because I found newspaper articles about him at the time, which, of course, people didn't know who he was going to be. They were just random newspaper articles. Um, hmm. Yeah, so it's 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 really a mix. And, and some of it, too, comes from, you know, his, his stepdaughter um, doing interviews and people who knew him during interviews. It's, it's, it's a lot of firsthand testimony um really really builds it out but but yeah not not a lot of not a lot of secondary sources it's it takes it takes it's a little complicated to do the research on Lutz would you ever write a book about it like a full book where you could go into big detail I would love to um so the only reason I actually didn't write my master's thesis on him is because I can't speak German yet I'm working on it, but um, a lot of the documents I want to read for research are in German. I can mm. read French pretty well, um, so I, I can read the couple documents that are in French, but not the ones that are in German. Um, so that's, I mean, that's that's my hope. I've certainly written quite a bit about it, and luckily, because of my job, I kind of have some, you know, closeness with the history, and I, I work in the, the uh, Holocaust studies field, so... That's the hope. I mean, I got to turn my thesis into a into a book first, but uh, Carl Lutz will probably be next. That'll be so fun. Mm -hmm. So one note I made when I was just reading through the story, I thought, you know, nothing in the world inspires me to be a better person than hearing a good World War II story. And I thought I should keep a journal because a lot of these stories you you get from journals and people's own yeah. writing. And yeah. then I thought. Well, I'm just a major narcissist. Well, you know what? I mean, if, if it makes you feel better, a lot of historians this year have urged people to write diaries be during the pandemic because, you know, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, those will be great primary sources. Hmm. So you could say you're doing it for the future historians. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, maybe I'll, like, hide it in my house somewhere and then in, like, <laughs> someone will find years, it eventually. Someone yeah. will be fixing the plumbing underneath. And like, mm -hmm. Hey. So another thing on your website, you say that... Your other area of expertise is the American understanding of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So tell me what that means. So that's, yeah, that's that's a complicated area. Um, so there's this kind of long-running myth in the United States. And, I, and I've done a lot of work on historical myth because it's, it's fascinating. Kind of debunking myth and everything is, is, is actually a very fun process. But this one, I suppose, is less fun. Uh, so there's a, a long-running myth. It's interesting, but a long-running myth about um, what Americans knew about the Holocaust and kind of how we responded. And so even even today, I still pe see people say things like, well, you know, the Americans didn't really know what was happening in Europe. And so, you know, we didn't really know until we liberated concentration camps what was happening, which is absolutely not true. Um, one of the I can't recall the the name of the project, but the the United States Holocaust uh, Museum has a project in which they urge people around the country to go look up uh, newspaper articles from their local newspaper from you know 1933 on about the Nazis coming to Bauer, about Kristallnacht, about the Nuremberg Laws, about you know every every major event. And what you find is from the very beginning, I mean everything was reported. In American newspapers, I and mean, maybe not every single detail, you know, the Nazis eventually tried to keep some of the really the worst parts of the final solution hidden for a while. You know, the gas chambers and, and what was going on in camps. Now, they weren't super successful with that, but they were able to kind of keep a, a lid on that a little bit. But, um, you know, there, there were, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of newspaper reports about um you know, vandalism during Kristallnacht, which is November 9th and 10th, 1938, were actually 
close to the anniversary here. Um, and every time a piece of anti-Semitic legislation was passed, there were articles in the United States about it. And then as you get closer, if you, you know, I, and I, I literally have spent hours looking at this myself. Um, uh, in in the early 1940s, I think it was about 1939, 1940, um, FDR actually withdraws the American ambassador to Germany because what was happening there, uh, not specifically just with the Jews, but with, you know, Germany moving into different nations and, and you know, um, invading France and, uh, and Poland and, and on and on and on. Um, and, and so there's all these reports. The Americans are responding to it. There are actually conferences of American Jews and others um, talking about what do we do? What do we do uh, starting in around 1939? How do we respond? Uh, there were boycotts on German goods in the 1930s. So obviously people knew something was going on um, um, in Germany. And then starting in... I mean, honestly, even in 1941, 1942, really 1942 and on, you see some really early reports. But late 1942, there was something called the Rigner Telegram. And that was a um, telegram from a man, his last name was Rigner, who was in Switzerland. Um, he was a, a president or, or member of the World Jewish Congress. And he had come across plans, uh, the Nazis' plans to and this is the word we use in Holocaust studies, to exterminate the entire Jewish population of Europe. Um, the plans were revealed. It was posted in the New York Times in November 1942. There was a press conference about it. Um, on, so, so people knew about the plan. And by especially 1944, when the Red Army is starting to liberate the Eastern Front, there are news stories about, you know, I mean, there's literal news stories that say 400,000 Jews killed here, 1 million Jews killed here. I mean, I mean, literal numbers um, wow. being published in newspapers. And so it actually isn't that difficult to just go through. I mean, even just newspaper accounts, there's plenty of other primary sources you could use. But just to see, we knew about it. And, you know, the America, America's, um, you know, the United States did do some things. Let's not pretend like we didn't do anything. Um, you know, we but the idea on our end was. If we win the war, that's good for everyone. We'll win the war. We'll liberate everyone. And, and in many ways, that was true. I mean, American troops and British troops liberated concentration camps in Germany. And the Red Army liberated most of the bigger camps on the Eastern Front. But um, there was more that we could have done. You know, so we didn't start our refugee program until January of 1944. Um, and, mm. and at that point, gosh, I think it was four or five million Jews had already been killed. Most of them had died by that point. And we had no refugee program. We, when, when German Jews especially were desperately trying to get out of Germany in the 30s, we had a quota system. We didn't let anyone in. I mean, we let some people in, but we let a very small number in and, and we did not give people safe haven. And so it was a mix. You know, we had individual people rescuing. We funded Raoul Wallenberg, who I mentioned, who was in Budapest. We did fund his rescue mission. Um, so it's very nuanced. I mean, I mean, the best place to go for this is the U.S. Holocaust Museum actually has an exhibit and there's an online portion of it called Americans at the Holocaust. And they do a pretty good job of hitting kind of the nuance of it. But the point here is, is why I think it's so interesting is that I think we just need to completely debunk that myth. That's still it's not as powerful, but it still exists that we that we just didn't know anything. And, and we certainly did. How much do you think the average citizen knew? Yeah, you know, that's so. I've wondered that myself, too. I actually have gone back and looked at newspapers from my small town in, in Kansas yeah. to see. And, and I will say, you know, I, I would not be completely shocked 
Now my great great grandfather passed away in thirty eight, but you know, of course, his kids and my great grandfather were alive. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if there were people in in towns like my hometown who read the local newspaper and didn't follow world events, who who maybe didn't know um, some of the details. Now, obviously, most people knew the war was going on. They knew, you know, um, you know, war reports were printed in every newspaper, no matter how small. And so I, I'm sure that there were. Um, people out in rural America who, who maybe didn't know all the details. And, and the other part of it is, you know, if you were, and I've thought about this a lot, like I think about my family who were farmers in, in, um, in Kansas, like what could they have done? You know, and then that's, and there was, there's really probably a limit to what some individuals could do, less so the United States government and less so, you know, some, some large national figures. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I, I would say it was the, the information was out there. I mean, it was it was not hard to find. It was publicized, but there certainly were probably individuals who were not as in tune with the details as say I am. Someone looking back seventy five years later. Yeah, history is really complicated, and that reminds me. I remembered what I was going to ask earlier. Um, so I am not a historian, even a little bit, <laughs> but I was thinking about with the advent of social media. And people being able to have their thoughts <laughs> so public. And so many primary sources, I suppose. But, like, will history mm -hmm. be even more complicated when you have literally so many, so many yeah. accounts of one event versus maybe just some official papers and a few journals or things that you might mm -hmm. pick up mm -hmm. yeah i mean you say you're not a historian but you're thinking historically that's that's how historians would think yay um yeah i mean i i think it will be very overwhelming now obviously you know future historians and honestly current historians people are people are writing about history as it's happening now um you know there's ways to narrow it you know so when i when i was doing my research on amelia Earhart, i read literally every single article that was published about amelia Earhart. Between oh like 1935 and now, but I, as I was scrolling through, it was easy for me to pick out which ones I didn't need to know. Like she had a luggage line and I would have newspaper articles pop up, like advertisements for a luggage line. I didn't need to know that for my research. And so there, there are ways to narrow it down, but your point about having almost too much information, I think is very valid. You know, there's this joke kind of floating around social media that future historians will study time period like periods of 2020 instead of you know the the entire thing like, wow. like you know so yeah. i i would like i was actually thinking about that this so if i was a futurist or a current historian and i was studying 2020 i'd want to study like march 12th to april 15th because that was that was a very interesting time mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean i think it'll be it'll be a new wow. challenge you know it's that it's the interesting thing about history is that and I think this is an unanswerable question of what challenge would be more difficult, too much information or too little. Mm -hmm. And historians, I think, are more used to having too little, especially the further back you go. But having too yeah. much information will be a challenge on its own. Yeah. I think what got me thinking about this um, was earlier this year, I'm sure you've heard of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. Mm -hmm. Super good, but I mean, each episode is probably on average five hours mm -hmm. long, so it's a bit of an investment. And I listened to his one about the Celtic Holocaust, mm -hmm. where the literal, literally the only 
record of it is by Julius Caesar. <laughs> and so he's constantly saying, look, we have to look at this from the perspective that, of course, he wants to say good things about himself yeah. and, and Rome. And he wants to say how big and massive this army was and look at how cool we were for beating him and how it, it's so complicated because you're having to read it through the lens of this guy is really full of himself, mm-hmm. had a lot of political points to gain. So then I was also thinking about how fast things happen on Twitter. And pretty soon you have, you know, my cousin who is a nobody. and But she has an opinion and it's out there for the world to read now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, that was a lot of big rant. rant no, over. but I think I think you're correct. I mean, and it's it's... <laughs> It's it's like I said, it's a challenge of its own. You know, when we look back in history, there's something almost very sad about all the all the histories and written artifacts that have been lost. Um, and you know, one of the things that we know in the history field is just because someone didn't leave records didn't mean they didn't have a history. It's just more challenging to figure out what that history was. Um, and and I do wonder if there's it's it's like there's almost a similar effect where we, we've reached the point of diminishing returns with with some the amount of information we have where it's it's just as equal of a challenge to to dig through it all so what's your day job so I work at a museum here in the St. Louis area. I finished my master's degree, oh boy, like three months ago now. And I actually work in communications. So I do lots of writing and speaking and hence why I have a, a microphone ready. I'm used to used to doing things like this. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do day by day. Interesting. So what are how are you able to do that from home? Is the museum closed? Yeah. So I work at a local Holocaust museum and it was closed like everything else for the pandemic, but we're actually, um, we're building a new museum. We are um, going through a renovation right now. So um, it would be, it would be closed anyway. Hence why I'm, I'm working from home. Cool. So you seem to have a common thread of being interested in World War II. What <laughs> yeah, is, what's the II reason behind this? The Holocaust. Um, that's a great question. So actually, my my parents were uh, they they found a report that I did in like fifth or sixth grade, and it was on the Holocaust. Which is you know if you're a fifth or sixth grader, that's pretty young <laughs> to be learning about that thing, that kind of that kind of stuff. But um, you know, apparently it was something I was interested in as as a young kid. You know, I I don't really know. I uh, it, it was one of those things that just hit me when I was young that. You know, I, I believe that when you learn, especially about the Holocaust, once you know enough, it's hard to not tell people about it. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to not, you know, as, as cliche as it is to say never again, it's hard not to really believe that and, and act on that. And so I think that was a big part for me and that I just, I got to a point where I knew enough and I said, okay, this is, this is what I have to talk about. This is what I have to do. And that's what I'm doing. Hmm. What are your favorite books? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've read through the classics, uh, quote unquote classics. So I'm actually rereading uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich right now. Uh, oh, my gosh. The author's name. It's a famous book. The author's name slips my mind. But that's it's, it's a I mean, he, he was in the author was in Germany during the rise and fall of the Third Reich. So and he's, he's a historian. Um, so I'm rereading that. Uh, the the real central book on the Holocaust 
um, it's a little out of date numbers wise, but um, is by Saul Friedlander. He used to be at UCLA. He, he, he was actually, I think he passed away a few years ago. He was a Holocaust survivor himself and he has t- two volumes. Um, I think the, the title is just like the Holocaust and there's, um, and there's subheadings and it's something like 1500 pages long, which as you can imagine is not, um, it's an important book, but it's, it's, it can be rough to read. Um, let's see, goodness, I've read, read so many. I mean, I, I, you know, my area of research is into Carl Lutz, the Holocaust rescuer. And so I've read, there actually are not a lot of books on him. There was one that came out in 1995. Uh, actually, it came out in 1995 and it's translated into English, I think in 2000. It's called Dangerous Diplomacy. That's a good one. Um, you know, I've got a whole list, but I but I would start there. Those are, those are the, I, I had someone ask me recently, if I wanted to learn about this, where would I start? And, the, and those would have been some of the ones that I would recommend. Gotcha. I know that I, and enjoy is a not the right word to use mm-hmm. for anything along this subject, but most striking was obviously Unbreakable, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I don't read probably as much as you, so I'm going to have a lot more cliche of answers, but Unbreakable <laughs> and mm, The Zookeeper's Wife. You know, I have not read that. I actually keep meaning to watch the movie, to be honest. Well, don't do that. But... Don't do that. Don't do that. I, okay. I, I started the movie and it was so bad I turned it off in about five minutes. They oh. just didn't portray the characters well. I don't I'm sure that they got a lot of the storyline right, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was kind of the heart of who the people were. They seemed to miss right off the bat. Yeah, you know, you know, movies about or especially movies based upon books about that period of time are very tricky. They're very difficult. You know, so so you've probably heard of the book The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Um, mm-hmm. I have not read the book. I've seen the movie. I will never see the movie again because it is one of those movies that destroys you. And, um, you know, it, it has its, it has its benefits. I mean, it's, it's an impactful film. I'm sure the book is the same way, but it actually historically, I mean, obviously it's a fictional book, but it's, it's not, uh, there's there's some historical errors in it, like things that would not have actually happened in real life, and so and so there's there's books about that era that kind of run into that sometimes. But there's other books you, you may have heard about this because a lot of I read it when I was in, gosh, like fifth grade probably. The book Number of the Stars, um, which is a fictional book, but it's about a um, an actual event, which was the uh, the rescue of the the Jews of Denmark. Um, and it was about a fictional girl taking part in that. So it was actually a pretty good representation of an actual historical event, just a fictional piece. And so it's, sure. it's interesting to kind of parse out books like that. Have you been to Europe to any of these like Holocaust museums and seen some of the sites? I have not. I've only been to Europe once and it was in Italy when I was in high school. And so I was not... I mean, there certainly was a Holocaust in Italy, but it's, you know, the, the sites that I'm knowledgeable above would be in germany and hungary and poland and elsewhere so that's that's the goal um i would certainly like to at some point is is perhaps dark as that sounds but for research purposes definitely yeah oh i wanted to ask about your thoughts on oh it had to have been four or five years ago by now Mm -hmm. but that guy in britain who trained his pug to do the hitler salute when he said Heil oh, Hitler. I vaguely remember that. I was going to ask if you have, what are your opinions on Hitler jokes? Oh, man. So I 
I, I, that's a good question that I should have a better elevator pitch for. Um, let me, let me get to that in a roundabout way. I know this is not what you're asking, but I'm going to, I'm going to get to it. Okay. Um, I, I, and I think a lot of historians like this, especially people who know about the Holocaust are very, we don't want to make any comparisons. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. like. You know, you can, you can make, well, I don't want to say any comparisons. Obviously, to learn from history, we have to make some comparisons. But we're naturally skeptical of any comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have, you know, you have to kind of think about it for a second. And I feel like I kind of find, I think, I think similarly about jokes. I mean, to be honest, I think I, I have almost zero problem joking about, I mean, jokes that make Hitler look like an idiot. Or, or the Nazis look, you know, like laughing at that. I mean, I, I think that, you know, sometimes maybe that there's a, a threat of, I don't know, minimizing it. And that's certainly not the intention. But the way I think of it is that, like, the last thing someone with an ego like Hitler would want was to be made fun of and minimized. And it's something like, you know, I just kind of, mm-hmm. I got to think that it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to laugh because he would have hated that. Um, the, yeah, the, the dog thing is tricky. Like, I, I'm. I'm so curious what goes through someone's head. Like, and actually, like, how would you even try to figure out how that would work with a dog? I think, it's, it's... I think I recall, I looked it up, and I think that this guy, it was his girlfriend's dog, and he didn't <gasps> like the dog. So then he thought, what can I do to make my girlfriend also not like this dog? I'll teach it to do the grossest oh. thing I can think of, which is to do the Hitler salute when I say how Hitler. And... I find it humorous because it is absurd. It is it, a pug, for goodness sake. It, it is absurd. I just feel bad for the dog now that he's being used as a pawn in this in this uh, the, this relationship debate. I mean, I I'm not offended by the joke. I just think that like I feel bad for the dog. Like that's that's where my brain goes. Like it's like why would you why would you do that to a poor dog who has no idea what it's doing? Yeah, yeah, that is true. I hadn't thought about it. I mm-hmm. normally don't think of animals having feelings quite that deep that's true i just i'm very sensitive about my dog so i just kind of project that on like all animals i think that's fair so a couple months ago i did a job for a polish family they had really really thick accents it was really difficult to understand them they were born in like 49 and 50 in poland Mm -hmm. and they moved to the u.s in the 80s with two kids and two suitcases Mm-hmm. And such a sweet family. But he had a be all up in his bonnet about that Americans look at the Holocaust as all about the Jews. But what about mm-hmm. the Polish civilians that were stuck in the middle? And he felt really forgotten Interesting. about. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I, I, I can't speak from his position, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, it's. I see both sides of it, I guess. And, and I don't mean I'm saying both sides are, it's not, this is not a both sides of something. It's because the thing with the Holocaust is that the Jews and I mean, they, they were the primary target of, of the Nazis. I mean, it was like Jews up here as being their target and then everyone else below that. But, but to his point, there were other people targeted by the Nazis. I mean, I mean, the Nazis considered Poles and a lot of the ethnic groups in the East completely racially inferior and and planned to basically eradicate poles in general i mean not even just jewish poles but um people as well and lots of polish 
civilians and people died during during the Holocaust. Um, and then, of course, you know, they targeted political prisoners and people with mental and physical disabilities and the Sinti and Roma, who we know more commonly as the gypsies, um, people who are gay, sometimes people of color were put into concentration camps. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a point that we cannot completely forget everyone else who was targeted, but it is in other ways a uniquely Jewish experience too. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's both. I would say so too. Are you Jewish? I'm not actually. Not, not. Everyone I think, thinks I am, but I understand why. Yeah, but. yeah. I think I just have one more question that is just World War II adjacent. And okay. then I'll go into my closing questions. So have you ever read The Rape of Nan King or heard that story? Yes. I've, I've not I've not read it, but I'm I'm pretty familiar with the story. Yeah. So I read it last year and it just it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Don't read it if you have nightmares oh yeah i'm i'm a lot of that actually came up in like a amelia Earhart research of all things because i was studying you know the japanese perspective and and because people think that she was as you may have heard kidnapped by the japanese and so that actually popped him in that research a little bit. it wasn't related to amelia Earhart, but it was just like when you study the whole broad thing you kind of take everything in the you know everything falls under the umbrella huh yeah well, so one thing that was crazy is they killed in like two or three months. They killed about 250,000 Chinese people when they came mm-hmm. in. And this is gruesome. I might cut it out because it's a little bit much. But commanders were like, you're so slow at killing these people. We need faster Ugh. ways to do it. And they had this system where they would have like a mass grave dug and they would have lines of people, mm-hmm. like single file lines, and they'd chop the head off, and the oh, next Jesus. person in line had to push that person in. And then they got their head chopped off, and then the next person. And it's like, they did that for months. Well, and you know what it reminds me of? is is That's one of the horrors of, like, that entire era. I know that's that's Holocaust adjacent, World War II adjacent, but it's... There was a couple decades of just complete bloodshed and, and chaos for that time. Um, but you know what it reminds me of? If you've heard of the Einsatzgruppen on the Eastern Front. Um, so the Einz- so that that was like the first, it was the beginning of the actual final solutions. So we consider the Holocaust starting in 1933. But the mass murder really starts in 41. Because on the Eastern Front, as the, the German army was pushing through the Einsatzgruppen were these police battalions, basically, who would go through cities and round up people they considered undesirable, quote unquote, who were Jewish people, but also um, political op- opponents, anyone they, they wanted to, quote unquote, get rid of. And they would take them outside of a city. They would dig a mass grave and they would just shoot each individual one and push them in. And there was a there was an incident. We just passed this anniversary, too, called Bobby Yar which was near Kiev in 1941, in which in a two-day period they killed, it was almost 34,000 people in about 48 hours. Okay, so my final four questions, you can talk as long or short as you prefer. (laughs) Um, Do you like The Office or Parks and Rec better? Ah, that's a terrible question. <laughs> uh, arrested Development is is my answer. Um, okay, hold on. I actually got to think about this. Probably The Office. I think. I think just for nostalgia purposes, because I've watched it for so long. 
I lean the office, but I really do love Parks and Rec. Okay. Yeah, me too. Ron is so funny. I saw a meme. It was Ron with John Raffio, like, in his ear. <laughs> and Ron's just, and John yeah. Raffio's being, you know, his self. And it said, somehow I am both of these people. And I thought, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I feel that. So in Genesis 1 through 11, pre-Abraham, is this legend or history? Duh, that's, uh. You're good at asking questions that are difficult. So I both-ish. Okay, so here's here's the way that I look at it is that I believe in the Bible. I believe in the history of Christianity and obviously the Gospels. But it, it does not impact my faith to believe that some of the early portions of the Bible are more allegorical. Um, not that they didn't happen in one way, but... It's more about the message than it is about the specific details. Yeah. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that there are aliens? Oh, man. I really want there to be aliens. Because <laughs> I think about this a lot. Um, like, like of all of the weird, like, supernatural things, like aliens and ghosts and Bigfoot and all of that, like, aliens are the ones that I think are most likely to exist um outside of things like giant squid because those exist so i think that there are like things at the bottom of the ocean that are probably alien like that we don't know know about but i would like aliens to exist because i think it would just be kind of cool um and nasa revealed what today that they found water on the moon that's not in like the dark side of the moon not the dark side of the moon but like the craters or something i'm i'm not a scientist so i'm not going to pretend like i know what i'm talking about but i would like to believe in aliens i'm not saying that like I think people are being abducted right and left or anything like that. But out in the world somewhere, there may be some living creature off of the earth. I would like to believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's many, many sides to this question. It's like, well, do they exist in general? Do they, mm -hmm. have we ever seen them? Will we ever see them? I don't know. I don't, know. I don't think they've like been here and are abducting and are doing experiments. I think that they just might be out there yeah. somewhere. And like, I keep my mind open to the possibility. I think it would be really exciting. Would you mm -hmm. go into space? No. I don't like planes. I mean, I fly on planes because I have to. But unless, like, the Earth was burning <laughs> and I would die if I was here yeah. and I had to leave. No. I wouldn't. I, I, it's, 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 a, it's a heights thing and a claustrophobia thing. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do yeah. it. What is the craziest thing you've done? Like, have you been skydiving or bungee jumping or anything? Oh, man, I wish I was more interesting than than that. No, it's it's the heights thing. Nope, definitely nope. not going skydiving. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of crazy things that I've done. I mean, because all the crazy things that I've done are, like, not exciting. Like, I almost got arrested for putting up flyers on a college campus one time. Actually, more than one time. But it wasn't like I was doing anything illegal. It was just, like, the campus security was mad at me. Um... <laughs> So that, I don't think, really counts. Let's see. Oh, my goodness. I feel like I'm a really boring person, <laughs> to be honest, sometimes. Um, I don't know. I think uh, uh, I went to, this is, like, not going to sound like a crazy thing, but it kind of came out of nowhere. So, like, a couple, it was about a year and a half ago, like, kind of at the last minute, a couple friends of mine and I decided to just go to New York 
for um, a couple days and go to Broadway and spend a bunch of money to see Adam Driver on Broadway and met him afterwards. And it was no like way. the greatest day of my life. Yeah, no, it was literally the greatest day of my life. Um, so like, that's not like a crazy thing. Like I acknowledge that I'm really boring if that's like the most crazy thing that I've done. And I'm sure I'll actually think of something after I stop talking, but I feel like because I'm like someone who's so stuck to routines, like going on a trip, like completely randomly, um, is kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> the craziest thing I ever did is I flew, well, I went skydiving, but in more oh adjacent God. to you is I flew to Phoenix to go see Taylor Swift for the opening of the Reputation <laughs> Tour. And unfortunately, I did not meet her. But it was really fun. In about 48 hours, I got about three hours of sleep. And it was the highlight of my life. It was pretty fun. Well, that's exciting. While you were talking, I was listening. But I thought of something crazier. Okay. I said I would remember something. Um, I've been ghost hunting. <laughs> okay. Even though I, I don't more. really believe in ghosts. Um, I've been ghost hunting twice. Um, when I was an undergrad, they would bring like a legit, quote unquote, legit ghost hunter every year around Halloween. And I went once in a building that the campus owned that actually was the place that they sent students who had swine flu fun fact um and apparently like someone died there or something so we went and toured it and like there were lights that came on by themselves and doors that opened by themselves so i did actually like see things now all of those probably had an explanation of you know faulty wiring or something and then the next year so the the actual so the exorcist the movie and I, it's a book right um is based upon an actual case um, and it was a young boy, not a young girl. And the young boy, actually, the, I don't think the exorcism took place in St. Louis. He was from like Indianapolis or something, but his parents took him to St. Louis to meet with a priest or something. And he stayed overnight in a room that is now part of the admissions building of St. Louis university. And I've been to that room, um, where he stayed the night and like the, the EMF or whatever was going crazy. I don't know how those work. Um, but the scariest thing to happen was that my roommate almost fell through um, insulation. Because <laughs> oh. we were like, because it because it was like the area we were at was like not kept up. It was like literally this this thing. That was the scariest thing. So I have been ghost hunting and some things happened. I'm still skeptical, but it was, it was terrifying. Did you have, it's hard to know whether it's just the environment and it feels charged and you're obviously going to be thinking about it, but did mm -hmm. you get like weird feelings? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's tricky to answer. Cause like, I like scaring myself. So like, I was like super into it. Like I wanted to get scared and everything. So yeah, of course I felt weird and, and kind of scared. Um, it, it was weird to see like a door open by itself and then lights go on. That, that was a little weird. I still think there's probably an explanation for it. Um, I don't know if it was a weird feeling, like a, like there's something here kind of thing. It was more just like we were all scared and we were like bouncing off of each other kind of thing, yeah. which was weirdly fun. Yeah. I went to a haunted corn maze once and mm -hmm. there's just a lot of adrenaline, even though you know that this guy's chainsaw mm -hmm. isn't real, kind of makes you scared for a minute. Oh, yeah. yeah. Same kind of thing. I would be curious. I like to say that I am spiritually dead. In that I have no, no feelings whatsoever, positive or negative, like zero feelings about spiritual stuff whatsoever. Super mm -hmm. weird, but I've always wondered, like, I've, I've been in with my family in shops and they'll get a super weird feeling and then 
later when we get in a little bit deeper we'll find that there's like a witchcraft booth or whatever and they could Ooh. feel it when they walked in and i was like mm, i don't know felt like anthropology <laughs> to me i don't know <laughs> something yeah. yeah okay sorry i'll get to my last one <laughs> i'm having a really good time it's hard to stop that's good um oh who or what inspires you to be your best self ah Oh my goodness. I have to be kind of sappy, don't I? Um, but I mean, to be honest, like this is going to sound, well, there's, there's kind of two groups of people. I would say on one hand, one of the things I love about history is that you get to kind of quote unquote meet people Mm -hmm. who are inspiring in one way or another. So people like Carl Lutz, I think about like, I like the reason why he's inspiring to me is for the obvious reasons of what he did, but also like, I look at what he did and I think like, Oh my gosh, like I I can barely, you know, disagree with you know, or not disagree with someone. I disagree with people all the time, but um, you know, I'm more likely to just like put my head down and do my work. Like how how would I do what he did? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's so overwhelming and that's actually inspiring to me because it makes me want to be better. Um, you know, so I think about things like that. I think about like this is a whole other I mean, this is something I'm interested in, but I'm not an expert in, uh, which is the post-presidential career of John Quincy Adams. I know that sounds like weirdly (laughs) small, but like he became this really anti-slavery crusader Mm -hmm. and like put his life on the line to like speak against slavery on the house floor um, or on the Congress floor. And, uh, and so that was, I mean, so things like that, like actually just running into people in history. And, and of course, like, Oh my gosh, as cliche as it is to say like Amelia Earhart, um, I, my younger self would roll my eyes at that because I just heard about her all the time when I was a kid. But but she she did a lot for women at a time when it was very difficult to do things mm-hmm. uh, as a woman. Um, but in my own life, I mean, this is kind of a weird, weird way to go. But I think, oh, my gosh, they're so going to make fun of me for this. But, like, my siblings kind of – I'm the oldest. Um, but, like, my siblings kind of inspire me to be better. You know what it is? Because mm-hmm. it's like when you're the oldest, like, you want to protect your siblings. And then you see them grow up and, like – you're proud of them, but you also like want to be a good person for them kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, So I would, I would definitely say them as well. That's a cute answer. I haven't gotten that one yet. (laughs) Well, I suppose we could wrap this up, but I'm having such a good time. I don't want to. (laughs) It has been fun. Good. Okay. Well, you have a good evening. I'll let you go. You too.